The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the nation of, of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had, not, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to the acquainted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Ellie. Well, good morning again to you. Glad you're here with us this morning. I'm curious how you would answer a question of, what do you consider is crucial in life? What do you say is crucial? When I use that word, crucial. I know with my four-year-old, when he is uh, really wanting to play uh, video games, uh, the Wii or some Nintendo game or something, he always uses the phrase, what can I do? What can I do? And we have like all these toys around, but what can I do is his way of saying, what can I do but play these games that you can give me, Dad. Uh, what's crucial to him? Uh, the word crucial is an interesting word. I don't know if you've really thought about it before, but it's a word that actually 
uh, if you think of it and break it apart, it comes from the word forming a cross. In other words, uh, to perceive the cross. You know, I remember meeting with a, a, a man one time, and we were talking about Christianity. And as we were talking about Christianity, one of the things that, that he could identify with over and over was sin. He could talk about, in fact, that's why he wanted to sit with me, was to say, man, I'm really struggling with XYZ, and I really am um, <clears throat> trying to figure out how to live this life well. How do I live balanced? How do I address these things that I see? Um, and, and he was not a Christian, and I don't know if he is now since our conversation, but I remember him asking a question, and then when I began to talk about it and, and sin and talk about brokenness, mess, things that we see in our life that we wish weren't there, and then moving from that to what's the point of Christianity, the cross that Jesus actually went to the cross for those things, was a substitute for us, died, paid that penalty, it, it wrecked everything for him. In fact, he said to me, I, that makes no sense to me, and this is one reason I don't really get Christianity. Why in the world do I need somebody from thousands of years ago to actually pay for me now? Why can't I pay it out? I mean, I get that I have all these problems, but why can't I pay it out myself? Why can't I do that? Well, the passage we just read is one of the most crucial, in that sense, passages in the entire Scriptures. In other words, it forms the cross. It tells us that the cross itself, the ser servant that we're reading about, which is pointing to Jesus, is the crux of all Christianity. It's not just that we come, and, and it can be kind of weird. I mean, you just did this a minute ago. Maybe you're coming back through these doors, and you're, you're coming back and kind of embracing maybe the church again, or maybe trying it on. Maybe you just wandered through by, or you're in Nashville for the, the weekend, and you happen to come in, or, or, or maybe you're still kind of wrestling with cynical questions. You may hear the word sin and think religiousness, and think, okay, yeah, but how does Jesus' death his life, death, resurrection, how does his death on the cross actually pay as a substitute for those things in your life, for what we would call sin, for those things that are called iniquities, transgressions. It's called a million different things here. How does it actually work? There's a New York Times article that was written not too long ago that talked about how we have compassion on ourselves because it's a difficult question. What is our solution? Why you should stop being so hard on yourself, this article said. Said so self-compassion is a key to lightening us up. Says so the solution is called self-compassion, the practice of being kind and understanding to ourselves when confronted with a personal flaw or failure, according to Kristen Neff, associate professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. Research shows that the number one barrier to self-compassion is fear of being complacent and losing your edge. In other words, but the core to self-compassion is to avoid getting caught up in our mistakes and obsessing about them until we degrade ourselves and rather strive to let go of them so we can move on to the next productive action and place acceptance of clarity. But the problem is, if you know, if you read that, self-compassion sometimes hits a ceiling. See, the difference between what we're talking about with Christianity and towards sin isn't that Jesus has compassion towards your sin. The difference is what Christianity is saying is Jesus has compassion for and it becomes your sin. He actually takes it on. See, it's so hard when you see those things, and it's one thing to read that and say, self-compassion, I need to not be so hard on myself. I think all of us could take a page from that book. But at some point, you hit a ceiling, and you say, how, 
How do I receive compassion? How do I? See, Christianity is is saying it's not so much that Jesus or having compassion for your self-compassion for you. It's that Jesus is your compassion so that you can actually look at those things with less weight, less seriousness, less power. That's what the atonement, that word atoning means. We actually use that a lot in our lives. We never probably use that word because maybe we think of it as a religious word. It's not just one. We talk about it all the time in the ways that we want to have something in our life pay for the things that we see. How do we have payment? For not only the things that we the see that we don't want there, but payment for the things we wish were there. That is the crux of Christianity. And so this passage is, is probably one of my favorite in all the Bible. In fact, when I started studying it, I had one of those moments of being a little bit like in awe of it, <laughs> paralyzed. Some of you ask me how I write sermons sometimes. Sometimes I'll read a passage and I'll just, I'll work through it. Some passages like this one are so rich, so beautiful, so heavy that I feel in, in, a, in a sense of how in the world can we sit and talk about this for 20 plus minutes? <laughs> because it's so crucial to the aspects of how we live as Christians, and especially if you're here asking what a Christian is, this is the passage for it. So we're gonna try and break it down in two parts. One is, how is this crucial to to servant understanding our condition, a condition of us as humans, and how is it crucial to him being crushed for our iniquities? Those two words, alliteration, I gotta use it condition and crushed, that he identifies, he connects to our condition, but he also is crushed, actually crushed in his life for our iniquity in that payment. You know, when it begins this passage, it it talks a lot, and I'm going to focus primarily on the the beautiful middle of this, the the verses four through six, so if you're following along, we're going to use that and then echo out, because we live in Nashville. If If you take the time to go Uh, hear good music in Nashville, you'll eventually, hopefully, go to some sort of a writer's round. And this is the fourth song in what's called the Servant Songs. There's been four of them. I I preached on one of them before, and the other two have been preached on already. But this one is described unlike the other ones. It has perfect balance and form. And so right in the middle, you have verses four through six, and all around it is everything else. And the story that is incredible, and if, if, if you ever get a chance to go, we got to go, uh, well, uh, we have family in town, which has been so sweet, and we were able to go to um, a, a writing session at the listening room a couple nights ago. And maybe you've been able to do this, I hope you do. It's so different to actually go, and you sit and you hear the songs played, and you go, oh my word, that person wrote that song that's been on the you know, charts forever? And you hear these songs and they're amazing, but what's even more powerful is when they tell you the story about why they wrote that song. And it, it engrosses you, it draws you in. This song that was sung for years to come, it was sung by the people of Israel then, it's, it was sung, carried over, carried over so much in the New Testament. If you did a reference, bits and pieces of this song are referenced over and over and over to remind everybody that this is a song and a story that's not just some good piece of music. It actually connects to your story. It draws you in. It's perfect. It's balanced. And it says this about him in verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That he carried and bore those griefs. But see, the connection that this servant 
that is somewhat unidentified in the passage, but this is what the last song really does is kind of unveil who he is going to be. It says that he actually carried and bore these griefs. Now, at first, it, it, it can read like he took on and he became sickly and sad. But it actually is meaning that he became sickly and sad. Not just pitiful to look at, but sickly and sad that he took on. He became that actual thing for those people. He had no majesty, it says. Nothing to look forward to. Verse 2 of 52 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. That in fact, he was incredibly inadequate looking. See, if you're hearing a song that's going to announce this powerful person who's going to bear everything, the weight of the world on his shoulders, literally. You're thinking someone who's going to have broad, strong shoulders. Someone who's going to come from a royal line. But this says no. It's nothing about them. No notoriety. Nothing well built. This person was inadequate. The servant made himself truly a servant and lowered himself. And it even says further down, it says in verse 4 of 53, it says, Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The word esteemed means accounted for. It means that literally his account when people looked at him in terms of his worth was zero. It is often something that we may experience, and sometimes it may be a reality that we feel like when we're measured up towards people, or we measure ourselves in terms of how we've done or did, that we find ourselves lacking. This is what the servant was seen as. Lacking. Zero. Unaccounted for. There was an um, exhibit that lasted for the last year. I don't, I'm not sure if it's still up in New York. It was actually written up in The Atlantic. It was called, Your Flaws Are Probably More Attractive Than You Think They Are. It's called Beautiful Messes. What does it mean for us to be beautiful messes? So over the past year, visitors of the Rubin Museum of Art in New York City have been revealing their deepest fears and wishes. As a part of a special exhibit, now listen to this, museum goers were invited to write down their secrets on small pieces of vellum paper and hang the entries on a wall for everyone to see. On one side, people posted their anxieties. On the other side, their hopes. Thousands of visitors contributed like, lines like, I'm anxious because I'm afraid I'll die alone. I'm anxious because I might miss my chance to become a mom. I'm hopeful because life is beautiful and I'll feel happier soon. The exhibit called A Monument for the Anxious and Hopeful, which was on view uh, all the way from uh, February of last year even until now. Until this... Uh, it, it talked about anonymous confessions. 50,000 entries were expressed. Thoughts of people that wouldn't otherwise share publicly due to the rejection and shame and their fear of it. And researchers were, were just baffled by this as they read these things, that all these anxieties, all these grievances, all these things. Psychological research suggested that fear can be an overblown thing in people's mind. Often there's a mismatch between how people perceive their vulnerabilities and how others interpret them. We tend to think showing vulnerability makes us seem weak, inadequate, flawed, a mess. But when others see our vulnerability, their vulnerability makes us, uh, <clears throat> when others see our vulnerability, they might perceive something quite different, something alluring. A recent set of studies says this phenomenon is the beautiful mess effect. 
You see what the song is actually providing here is not necessarily a place for people to bring their grievances, not a place just for people to, to lay their fears. It's actually saying that the servant, instead of a museum, is actually taking up the actual fears and anxieties. Instead of a place, it's actually a person. What if that reality was our understanding of what Christianity is. It's not so much that Jesus just comes in a human form just to say, okay, I know what it's like to be in the human condition. He actually enters into the human condition to become the place where our fears, grievances, anxieties actually go and are all seen and known. What if we actually understood him identifying us with that? All the places where we feel zero, in our account. All the places where we have grief and sickness and sorrow and pain, the things that call us to not just be humans, but the things that we see as, man, if I could, if I could just get past this, if I could not have this in my life, if I could not see this pattern, Jesus comes, the servant in this form who bear and carry those things says he was acquainted with grief. It doesn't mean he just actually just had grief. It actually means he, he stepped inside of that grief. All of those things that were hung upon him, he took on. He understood it. He literally took the weight of that and felt that. His shoulders, not even looking or seeming majestic, carried every bit of the grief. He identified with every part of your condition. Emily Dickinson wrote a beautiful poem on this called Grief. Listen to the way she puts this. I measure every grief I meet with the narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. I wonder if they bore it long or did it just begin. I could not tell the date of mine. It feels so old a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they try to have and whether they could choose between, it would not be to die. I note that some, gone patient long, at length renewed their smile, an imitation of light that has so little oil. And I wonder if, when years have piled some thousands on the harm that hurt them early, such a lapse could give them such an balm. Emily lays out that measurement that we look at each other and we measure ourselves and we see our own grief and we see everyone else around us and the measuring of that. Is it, is it time that heals it? Is it coming to the end of it that heals it? What measure is by that that heals our grief? The servant's song tells us that there's someone who actually measures every ounce of your grief and receives it. That there's not a moment where he doesn't. He doesn't go for the easier size. And he, not only that, he takes the thousands of years piled on. It says that he surely has borne our griefs. Not that he, he will, but surely that there's someone has laid it on him. Those things that you experience, that you know and you think, there is no way anyone could identify or know what I feel. It is actually saying that in historical space and time on someone else's shoulders, heart, mind, and even within their soul, experienced that and took it on. That is the crux of him bearing those griefs. That's the crux of him doing that, taking it on, that he 
actually identified with those things. It says that there was no form or majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and rejected. All the ways that you fear rejection, all the ways that you are being rejected, all the ways that you reject other people and know what it's like to be rejected because we're doing that. This is where Jesus puts himself. This is the, the, the amazing thing about Christianity, what's crucial about it. He goes to a place that none of us would ever go. And not just to experience the condition that we have, but to actually experience the pain, the loss, and every part of it for you. That's what the cross is. That's why it is so crucial, and where that word, that language comes from, for Christianity. Because he goes to the places that where you think no one could have empathy. You know the word empathy, I was reading up on it, and it was, it's actually a word that's fairly new to our culture within the last hundred years. There's been other words for it, but for us to describe it, talk about it, what it really means, there's still some ambiguity on the original definition of it. But empathy here, and it really means that Jesus takes the actual load. He doesn't just say, I see that you're struggling, or I know you're struggling. It actually says in very specific ways in this song, and only a beautiful song could do, drawn out in the story of your story and this one, to say every part of your emotion, your physical, your tangible, the ways that you find yourself sick, sorrow, grieving, and rejected, he has taken on. And he knows your condition. He doesn't just talk about it. He empathizes with it. He knows what it is. And he, he goes so far not just to know the condition of our sin, but the, to be crushed for our iniquities. It says in verse 5 of chapter 53, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We talk about sin and those things, iniquities, transgressions. Those can be words that we don't really use in our vernacular, especially even sin. Maybe sin for some of you growing up is like sin. We talk about that because I grew, maybe you grew up in a church, you heard sin is the bad thing, and that's what it means. But it's actually trying to make it larger than that. The words are not just trying to say things you do wrong. But he's trying to, to say to you and I the ways that you, you and I both try and get out of those things, that we need payment. Like if I was to sit with some of you and to say, how do you pay for the ways that you see your life is not right? Now, we all believe in payment. See, that's the answer to it is, it's, yeah, we all believe that we're broken. We all believe we have messes. But the real question is, how do we think we can pay for it? How do you and I think we can actually pay something down? Because we do live in a world where we believe that. And maybe Christianity is something that's like, this is the best version of that, but you still work hard like I do to want to try and pay for the portion that I can. I don't want God to, to fit the whole bill. Like, that feels really bad to me, right? Maybe that's where you feel. But, but that's what he's saying. He's crushed for those things. See, what is the payment you have for, for your health? We understand payment for your payment for, for what you want to look like, payment for what you want to feel like, payment for what it means, the hours you put into the office that you're unwilling to come home. Payment for things and in ways, yeah, they may come out with good things, but we're ultimately trying to pay for something that we can't, that we can't solve, that we can't change. 
that we can't do anything about. And this is why he goes to lengths to say pierced, crushed, chastised, wounds. This is why this descriptive language that this servant doesn't just say, I identify with the condition he actually takes on and is crushed for those things. The word even pierced, it begins that he's pierced for our transgressions. It's not even a word that's used anywhere in the Old Testament. This is the only place this word is used. It means a fatal wound. It means something fatal for something that has been done. And a transgression is, is that. It's a law that we think we need to break. Many of us are like, well, I don't break the big things. Or maybe you think, what, tra- what is a transgression? I'll tell you a transgression I, I just thought of yesterday. Uh, my, uh, like I said, our family, part of our family is in town. And I somehow tricked my uh, very kind brother-in-law to help me move a, uh, the trees that I told you that were falling. Uh, he, had, he and I went to the dump yesterday to dump all these trees and load them up. We lo- it takes us hours. We get there. We're, lo- we're unloading this thing. We back in, and they have all these rules, if you've done that kind of thing, where you have to dump you know, tree stumps and mattresses and all this stuff. You can only dump a certain amount in the thing. Well, the guy comes up. One guy comes up. He says, you can only dump half of this. Another guy comes up with seeming more authority. He says, uh, you can only dump like a foot of this. And we're thinking, a foot? I mean, what? we have like a trailer literally piled higher than me. And we're thinking, how, how do we do this? So immediately, what do I think? The guy walks away, and we just start like throwing in as much as possible. I'm thinking, whatever, dude, I'm throwing in as much. Is that half? You know, I, is, until he, you know, some guy comes back. Why? Because I don't care about his rule. <laughs> I want to dump my trailer. We worked hard to fill that thing. I want to get that tree out of there. You walk away, it's my rules, right? That's exactly what he's saying. He, t- he even uses this language in verse 6. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. It sounds like this sweet, like little pasture, kind of all sheep have gone astray. No, no, no. What he's saying is exactly what I just told you in me, about me. Is dude walks away, rules go with him, and I'm doing whatever I want. That is us. We all think that we can do it our own way. All we, like these animals... <laughs> believe that we can, we can do it ourselves. We can pay for it ourselves. Look, I did the work of chopping you know, up this wood. We did all this work loading this thing up. I paid for that. I should be able to put as much as I want in that trailer. I mean, in that dumpster or whatever. See, it, it's, it's my enti- entitlement <laughs> that I think I can pay for that, that I should. That's what transgression is. That's me saying, I don't care what rules there are. I make the rules. And what the servant is saying is he's pierced for those things, even the small ways that I don't want to follow some guy at some dumpster. And even the large ways that we think, how in the world could someone be pierced for my ways of throwing stuff out, living according to how I want? See, the, the entire, if you want to know what the whole Bible is, if you're struggling to read it, you're wanting to, to pick it up, the whole Bible is this. It is about a story of us turning away and trying to think that we can do it the whole time. And God, in his kindness, doesn't just send a lightning bolt. He doesn't send an idea. He, does, he sends a person. And in a way that he doesn't just send a person to do what we can't do or won't, but to actually be pierced fatally wounded 
in the ways that we say, God, no thanks. He takes it on in that way, a payment for all the things that you and I want to pay to try and be that person, to have our own rules, to have the great looks, the the, the, the job, all the family, all those things we're willing to pay so much, sacrifice all of ourselves for, he sacrifices first. He goes beneath us with the servant and even is crushed for that very thing. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. Unfair. That's what an iniquity is. Unfair, immoral behavior. You know, the, the things that, that struck me about one of the songs we sang, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, it says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Jesus actually has his heart crushed for the ways that we are unwilling to do that. I sang that line and I thought, Lord, help me to understand what that is more. For what your heart is, for, the, for me, for those around me, for this world, because isn't that what we long for? Justice. We want some justice for ourselves and for this world. That's the payment. We deserve this, but God is saying, no, 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 we, we think we know, but we don't. Break my heart for what breaks your heart, God. Not just break my heart. And Jesus puts himself in that position. I was listening to uh, This American Life. Sometimes I do that. I've mentioned that to you all before. Some of the stories are <clears throat> excellent and some of them are you know, all over the place. This one was called No Fair. And in this particular episode, it was about uh, a teacher. This is genius. It was about a teacher who had all these kids who kept coming up. And so if you're a teacher, hey, maybe you should try this. These kids kept coming up to her and tattling on everybody else. Maybe many of you are in that position when you're teaching. And <clears throat> she thought she'd try something different. So she made this little box that looked like a phone and said, this is called the tattle phone. And so whenever you have a problem with somebody, you just go over to the phone and you just tell the phone. Don't tell me, tell the phone. <laughs> and if you can imagine, it was like, like hordes. It became such a big deal that they replaced the phone with a real, like a, kind of an old, you know, fun, red-looking one, but it had a recorder in it, so they would record the kids' grievances. And so over and over, you heard it, it, over these things like, so-and-so pulled my hair, <laughs> you know, like just going up and saying things like that. One kid actually went up and ordered a pizza. Uh, one kid said something effective. They hung up, and then they came back and said, oh, I'm so sorry I had to hang up on you, and then hung up again. Um, but the teacher was asked, how much has this shown of the small injustices of, like, what, what, what does the day look like? She said, most of my entire day is watching little, little ones go to the phone and all they share is their injustices. 90, 95% is these little injustices that this phone takes up and is heard. This song is about a God who comes and, and actually cares for those small injustices and takes those on. This is what sometimes we think prayer is, us just throwing an injustice to God. What we're actually doing in a service, a worship service, and in prayer, and in these moments, is actually offering those injustices that God has actually taken on. That's what the word crushed means. 
Crushed is almost like, it's like a bouncy ball that, you know those bouncy balls that if you throw them down, even if you barely, if you drop it, it'll bounce up like everywhere. And you feel like those things are just indestructible. But you put one of those things under a certain pressure and they just explode. That is the image of what God has done with the injustice, both small and big, of ours on Jesus. He has crushed his son to do so and chastised him so that we may receive peace. See, there's a part in this that sometimes we can hear these things about our condition and we can hear how Jesus has has actually taken on these things and been crushed. But what it says that we cannot miss is the very end here when it says, it's by his wounds we are healed. See, to hear what I've said and to hear this passage, it could be easy for many of us in this room to say, man, I'm guilty. Or to try and hold on to our guilt. Or look at a table like this as if this table, you're unworthy to come to because you just have too much guilt. This passage is actually doing the opposite of what you may be feeling, if that's the question you have. It's actually saying all of your guilt is on another. If you are here this morning and you're holding on to your guilt still thinking, I, man, I'm, I, need, I can't believe Jesus took all that. I really want to encourage you to move from that to say, hey, this is the point. By his wounds, you are healed. That language, are healed, means it's an actual verb tense that you are specifically now. That it is yours. You are healed. There's no more sickness in you for that. God has expunged it and put it on his son. Coming to this table means that this is not a table of guilt, but of healing. It means, yeah, you you have a savior that has to identify with your condition, but when you come to this table and you taste it, you need to know every part of your sin, every part of your condition, every injustice, small or big, every aspect of your grief and sorrow, is laid on him and you get to taste the beauty. This is a table of celebration, not of guilt. And you bring it here because he's taken it. And here's what's beautiful. Jesus didn't stay in the grave because of your guilt. He rose again. Verse 10 in this passage, one of my very favorite ones, because it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Do you know why? There's actually an implication in there. The will of the Lord to crush him. Do you know why? And in some translations it says it pleased God to crush him. Why in the world would it please him? The implication of this song is because it pleased him to crush his son for you. The simple good news that he crushed his very own son for you that this servant isn't still in the grave. He took on and says your substitute, but he rose again to remind you and show you that there is no amount of your guilt that can keep him from you. He's not a place, he's a person. So as you come to this table, I want to remind you of that. I want you to be reminded that this table is for you to come and rejoice in what you have in Christ. Let's stand together.